Okay. So now that you've all exchanged Christmas shopping lists with each other, you'll be good to go, right? And I was informed to, uh, that I need to amend one thing that uh, Pastor Vince said, and that's the Christmas Eve service will actually be on Christmas Eve this year. So it'll actually be Tuesday rather than Wednesday evening. So um, that's okay. You, you knew what he meant anyway. So I uh, hope to see you here Christmas Eve. It's going to be a good time. Like, um, like many families at uh, Christmas time, we have a tradition of exchanging gifts uh, with one another inside our family. And uh, we, we try to, uh, to spend a little time, a little bit of effort with that. Think about the person that you're uh, uh, going to give a gift to and think about their likes and, and, uh, and dislikes. And, and then try to choose something that's appropriate uh, for them. Maybe to buy something or sometimes even to hand make something for them that would be you know, special for them, a special gift for them. When I was a child... I uh, thought like a child, and uh, and I used to um, I used to go for size. You know what I'm saying? I um, I always thought the bigger the box, the the better this thing was going to be. And it wasn't until I managed to grow up a little bit that I recognized that good things come in small packages, right? Like diamonds and and such. So. Uh, so yeah, so now I'm not just all about the size of the, of the package. I'm about the content. And I say that to, uh, to just sort of introduce uh, this morning to you, and that is I have a small package for you this morning. We're, uh, we're only going to look at a couple of verses uh, together this morning for our, our Christmas message. So it is a small package, but I promise you that it contains diamonds, it is filled with the most amazing jewels of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So open your Bibles up to, to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, and we're, we're just going to look at really two verses, verses 4 and 5 of Galatians chapter 4. And, and these verses just contain a mountain of truth. Truth that is guaranteed to, to amaze you. Truth that is guaranteed to gladden your heart at this time of the year. This little package here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, is, is, uh, reminds us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that we have been delivered from the uh, treadmill of performance-based religion. That our relationship to the God of the universe is not determined upon how well we perform. But that our relationship is full, secure, and complete in what God has done for us. And that He willingly offers it to all who would come by faith and embrace the truth. Complete, full acceptance into the family of God. Galatians chapter 4. Let me get a run at it. Uh, I'm going I'm to read a little bit longer than verses 4 and 5, and you'll understand later why I want to do that. But I want to get a run at the passage. And, and as, we, as we look at verses 4 and 5 in particular, there are, there are three aspects of the glory of Christmas 
that I want you to see here. Three aspects of the glory of Christmas here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But let's take that running start at it in verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Three glorious aspects here in this passage, verses 4 and 5. The first that I want to look at with you is what I'm calling the Father's initiative. The Father's initiative here in, in verse 4. And, and Paul reveals it here for us in a, in a series of two clauses. Two clauses in verse 4. The first of which is when the fullness of time came. The fullness of time. It's an interesting expression, the fullness of time. It, it refers to a set time. A set time, or, or the end of an appointed time. A certain place in, in human history in which an event is going to come to pass. And here in the, in the context, it, it, it corresponds to, to verse 2, the, the date set by the Father. The date set by the Father. That date when a young son would, would come of age and would come into possession of his inheritance. Paul says that, that in the counsels of God, there in eternity past, that inter-Trinitarian council, that God the Father fixed a time, a certain time, and that that time had now arrived. The time had arrived. From a human perspective, we, we can see certain things about this particular time. That it was ripe, it was the proper time, it was the right time. The law had done that which it was designed to do. It, it, it had worked among the nation of Israel, among the Jewish people. It had shut them up under sin, according to chapter 3, verse 22. It had shut them up under sin. The law had revealed their need for a Redeemer. The Gentile world was, was ripe for a Deliverer as well. Though the world at large was, was broken by sin. The old religions no longer satisfied. There was a, there was a growing sense among the people of those times that, that something had to happen. It, it couldn't continue like it was, that, that a deliverer needed to come. We can see it in, 
in Matthew chapter, chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2 where the Magi come from the east, right? And they're searching for that one. Where is he, the one who has been born king of the Jews? We, we saw his sign. We know that now is the time. Now is the time. Providentially, we know that many things had occurred that were leading up to this time that just set the table. It made it right for the coming of the Son of God into the world. The world now had a common language. A common language. With the defeat of the Persian Empire by Alexander the Great three centuries earlier, Greek Culture and language had been, had been spread across the world from, from Greece to Afghanistan. The process is, is called Hellenization. And it's important because it provided that common Greek tongue in which all of these wide, diverse people groups could now communicate one with another in this, in this common Greek, this Koine Greek. And it set the table for worldwide evangelism. It provided a means for the New Testament to be, to be written in Koine Greek and, and communicated far and wide. Common tongue, common language in the fullness of time. Beyond that, the world was, was living under what was called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana. And it, and it just refers, it's a Latin, and it refers to the Roman peace. The Roman peace. It, it's, it was a period in world history, about, about 200 years long, beginning in 41 B.C., when the Roman Senate had bestowed the uh, title of Augustus, or, or the, the revered one, upon a Roman ruler by the name of Octavian. Octavian. He became known as Caesar Augustus. And he ruled the world. He ruled the Roman Empire for 41 years. And the policies and, and, the, and the, uh, the groundwork that he laid set the table for peace and stability across the known world and provided the mechanism for the transmission of the gospel. Specifically, under Augustus, the, the Roman legal code was revived, re, uh, revised rather, and, and it removed some of the injustices that had been built into it where the rich had a one set of law and the poor had another. He revised that legal, that legal code and, and he made being a Roman citizen something that, that had meaning across the empire. Roman roads were constructed. Roads designed to, to transport Roman legions rapidly across the empire in order to go to the place of greatest need. I was just reading here this past week that, that during that time, that, that vast Roman Empire, there was only 150,000 legionnaires. And yet they were able to, to maintain such a far-flung empire because they could move their army quickly. Well, what Rome determined for the purpose of pacifying the empire was used in the purpose of the gospel to enable travel. People could now travel safely and quickly from one end of the empire to the other. Mail delivery was now a consistent feature that allowed you to, to communicate and correspond by letter across vast swaths of the empire. All of these things in the, in the fullness of time. 
urbanization was another feature of the Pax Romana. We don't really think about that, but, but the consolidation and concentration of people in cities set the table for gospel propagation. It is the rural people who are, who are most resistant to change, least likely to embrace this new religion. But, but when you concentrate the people into the cities, they become more willing to consider new ideas. It also allows you to, to access large groups of people with relative ease. And so this urbanization set the table for the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. You read in the book of Acts, and, and he travels from city to city to city and spreads the gospel, plants churches, and then they, they multiply and move out into the countryside. All these features of the Pax Romana set the table in the fullness of time. Beyond that, religiously, there was the, the presence of synagogues, the presence of synagogues throughout the known world. When the, when the Babylonians uh, took the, the nation of Israel into captivity in 586 B.C., they, they dispersed the people across the empire. This is called the diaspora or the scattering. And so the Jewish people were, were pushed into all the various areas of the empire. And wherever they went, they would establish synagogues. Synagogues, places where the, where the Torah would be read, places, places where the people would gather. No longer able to, to concentrate their worship there in Jerusalem at Solomon's temple, they took it with them. They adapted it to take it from one end to the other. And it was in these synagogues that later the Apostle Paul has a basis for the launching of church planting ministries. He goes to the synagogues and he begins to preach the good news that Messiah has come. It is there in the synagogues that the, that the local uh, non-Jews, the Gentiles, become first uh, acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures that had previously been translated into Greek. When the... the um, what we call the Septuagint. And so all of these factors combine together for the fullness of time. The fullness of time. Beyond that, in the Father's initiative, it says at this moment, in the fullness of time, when, when all of these factors are in place by His plan, by His providential rule, God then acts. It says He sent forth His Son. He sent forth his son. Beloved, the glory of Christmas lies in, in the, the fact that the triune God reached out to us. He reached out to us. He came to us. He became a man. He, he humbled himself. And he came into the world in order to seek and to save that which was lost. All other religions, all other religions are essentially man's attempt to reach to God. An attempt that is guaranteed to fail. Uh, an attempt that cannot succeed. And yet this, the, the true religion, the, the, the reality is that God reached to us. What we could not do for ourselves, God did for us. It's the good news of the gospel. God had become man that he might reach out to mankind. God sent forth his son 
He sent him forth. This, this speaks of the eternal deity of the Son. That the Son came forth from the bosom of the Father. He was, he was sent out from his pre-existent state by the Father into the world at his incarnation. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul says it this way, speaking about the pre-existence of the Son in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 6 and 8. He says, Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Over to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. God sent forth his Son into the world in the fullness of time. What does it mean for us? Well, it means this, beloved. When we celebrate Christmas, we are making the most bold declaration imaginable. We are declaring the most amazing story the world could possibly hear. We are saying that the living God stepped into space and time. He stepped into space and time, and he, and he did it himself. He didn't send a, a surrogate. He didn't send a, a substitute. He himself stepped into space and time. And because he did, nothing can ever be the same again. Nothing. Everything has been changed by this most amazing reality. We even recognize it in the way we keep the calendar, don't we? We recognize that there are, there are two great epochs of human existence. There were before Christ and there is in the year of our Lord, right? God stepped into space and time. And it was by the Father's initiative. It was the Father's initiative. He reached out to us in the person of his own son. And that takes us to the, to the second aspect of the glory of Christmas. And that is the son's identity. The son's identity. Paul wants to, to just think for a moment on the identity of this, this son, this sent one. And he does it here with a, with a twofold description of his identity. He speaks about the son's humanity and he speaks about the son's relationship to the law of God. First, his humanity. Well, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. You see it? Born of a woman. Now, this, this description, born of a woman, it... it certainly allows for the virginal conception of the Son of God that is clearly taught elsewhere in Matthew and Luke's gospel. But, but that's not Paul's point here. That's not Paul's focus here. It's, it's not what he is stressing. He is stressing something else. 
what he is, what he is speaking of, what he is stressing here is, is the genuine and essential humanity of the Savior. He wants us to, to think about the humanity of Jesus Christ. The point he is making here is, is about Christ's likeness to us, not his dissimilarity with us. Born of a woman, just like you and I. That's how you come into this world. You are born of a woman. And Jesus was born of a woman. Beloved, his conception was supernatural, to be sure. It, it defies our understanding, right? The, 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 uh, the Spirit of God shall come upon Mary. The power of the Most High shall over, you know, overshadow her. And the one conceived in, in you shall be of the, you know, of the Holy Spirit. And, and we go, well, what does all that mean? And the answer is, I don't know. It's supernatural. It defies explanation and understanding. So his conception was clearly supernatural. But his birth and his life were remarkably normal. Remarkably normal. He came into the world. He was born of a woman. Just like you and I. Born to a poor Jewish couple. Wrapped in rags at his birth. Lived a life of, of relative obscurity. He, he lived in an out-of-the-way place called Nazareth. Nobody goes to Nazareth. Nobody. It, it's, it's, it's up in the hill country. You, you, you don't get there unless you want to go there. Very, very normal. Life. You ought to be able to identify this because you're a nobody. And so am I. Like, we're all nobodies. The big idea here is that, is that Jesus was born human just like you and I. And it's because of that. It's because of that, that that he can identify with us as our Savior. The writer of the Hebrews is very clear in this point. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus identifies with us. Jesus died a, a human death that he might break the power of death over all of us, poor humans, who live under the shadow of our own mortality. Born of a woman. Born under the law, Paul says. Born under the law. What does he mean by that? Well, I think he's reflecting on Jesus' 
fact that, that he came into the world as a, as a Jewish male child. What does that mean? That, mean, that means he was circumcised the eighth day. It means, he, it means he grew up reading the Torah, just like all the other Jewish kids. It means he, he prayed to his heavenly Father. It means he attended synagogue. But unlike anybody before him or anyone after him, he fully, he completely, he totally fulfilled the requirements of the law. In perfection, all that the law demanded, all the precepts of the law, he fulfilled them all. Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. And Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And and on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Jesus perfectly kept the law. And in perfectly keeping the law of God, he, he also took on and met all of the general obligations of God that have been imposed upon humanity. Those things that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 2 and and verse 15, the law written on our hearts. Jesus fulfilled all of that too. Thus he is eligible to be the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Beloved, for 1,500 years, 1,500 years, The nation of Israel had related to their God through the Mosaic Covenant. Through the Mosaic Covenant. It is a legal and sacrificial system established by God at Mount Sinai, the time of the Exodus. The purpose of the law in the the Mosaic Covenant there is, among other things, to impress upon the people the holiness of God and the necessity for a substitutionary atonement. For 1,500 years, day in, day out, God taught his people that he is holy, that they are not, and that the only way they can come into his presence is to have a substitute, a blood sacrifice. So for 1,500 years, animals temporarily made the the covering for sin that that allowed the people to go on for one more day. Vividly pointing out to them all the while the reality that that someday the ultimate sacrifice is going to come. Someday, though, the one promised that the, the seed of the woman, right, who will crush the serpent's head will come. And so they waited. They waited one generation after another. They didn't foolishly think that by bringing a a lamb with them that, that somehow that was good enough. They knew that that the blood of an animal would never wash away the sin of their soul. They knew a deliverer had to come. They knew there needed to be a final sacrifice. 
a perfect sacrifice. And it had to be a man, and it had to be a perfect man. It had to be one who could, could be their substitute. One whose own life was not contaminated by sin. One who was pure. And one whose sacrificial value was of such infinite capacity that he could stand in for the sin of his people for all time. One sacrifice. They were looking for this one. The sinless one. The promised one. Born under the law. Born of a woman. The father's initiative in sending him. The son's identity. Born of a woman. Born under the law. And then the father's intention. In sending him. The father's intention. Why did he send his son into the world? Why did he do that? Couldn't it be some other way? Some other plan? No, this is it. This is it. But what do you want to accomplish, God? What what was your design? What was the purpose? Sending your own son to live and to die. So that he might redeem those who are under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Paul says the, the father here had two intentions. Two intentions in sending his son. This is what Paul is, is expressing here. This is what he's focusing on. Two intentions in sending the son. And these two intentions are, are, are declared here by a, by a pair of purpose clauses. You see the word that, so that, the beginning of verse 5, then in the middle of the verse, that. These are purpose clauses. Why did he send the son? Here are the reasons. And grammatically, it's, it's interesting to me because the, 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 the first purpose uh, is, is encompassed the second. One encompasses the other. What I mean by that is this God sent his son so that he might redeem us, first purpose, and he redeemed us so that he might adopt us. One precedes the other. One includes the other. One encompasses the other. What is the father's intention? It's to redeem us so that he might adopt us. To redeem us. It's an interesting concept. What does it mean? It's a word that that speaks about the slave markets. It has the idea of of buying someone out of servitude. Buying them or ransoming them out of slavery. That he might redeem us. That he might buy us up. That he might ransom us. That he might redeem those who are under the law. Paul says. You see verse 13 of chapter 13, or chapter 3 rather, verse 13, chapter 3, there's only, yeah, there's not 13 chapters here. Anyway, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
having become a curse for us. For his written curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. He has, he has bought us up. He has redeemed us. He has ransomed us from the curse that's upon us. What curse? The curse that says you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor and yourself and you haven't done it. And to break one part of the law is to be a transgressor of the entire law. It is to bring the full weight to bear upon you. To be a slave of your sin. Destined for judgment. No way out. And yet God the Father sent His Son into the world that He might purchase a people for Himself. Both Jew and Gentile. And by the way, that's, that means all of us, right? Kind of catches it all up. Are under obligation to keep the law of God. They're under obligation to keep the law. It's either for the Jew, it's the, it's the written Mosaic law. For the, for the Gentile, it's the law of God written in our hearts. And yet they didn't. And they couldn't. And you don't. And you can't. And that puts us in some kind of pickle, doesn't it? God doesn't negotiate his holiness. He doesn't say, you know, close enough. Nice try. Partial credit. To fall short is to to fail. We need some help, right? We need help. We need need someone to help us. We're we're drowning in our sin. We we need someone, not just to throw us a, a life preserver and to say, grab a hold, swim harder. The shore is that way. We need someone to get in the pool. We need someone in the pool with us. We need someone to buy our freedom. We need someone to ransom our soul from the penalty of the law. Jesus is that someone. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, right? Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He ransomed us so that he might adopt us. And this is what's really cool. To be ransomed is is an amazing thing. Purchased from the slave market of sin. Penalty paid, stamped, paid in full. But then, to become a child God, to become a child of God. Not just a freed slave, but to become a son of the Most High God. Adoption. That we might receive, Paul says, the adoption as sons. 
that we might receive the adoption as sons. Adoption in the first century was a very interesting process. Generally, it's not part of of the Jewish culture and experience. The Jewish people did not adopt. But adoption had a very long and rich history among the Greek and Roman peoples. It's a Gentile tradition. The most famous example of this period of of Gentile adoption is is Julius Caesar adopting his great-nephew, Octavian. You remember Octavian, right? He's the one that the Roman Senate in 27 B.C. conferred the title of Augustus upon. His great-nephew, Julius Caesar, adopted and made his son and thus set him up to follow him as the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. The same Caesar Augustus that Luke speaks of in chapter 2, verse 1, who sent out a decree over the entire earth that a census should be taken. That's Caesar Augustus. Now, the way that Greek and Roman uh, adoption was practiced is, is really quite, as I say, quite interesting. The adoptive father would, would legally take a man who was not his natural offspring, and he would bring him into the legal obligations and religious duties of a real son. To be adopted meant that you came into the, into the family and you assumed the legal obligations and the religious duties of a man's firstborn son. Often it was done to, to perpetuate the family name. To... to to continue the paternal authority in the family. The man, the man expected not to live all that much longer, and so he would bring someone in as his, his adoptive son in a legal process, and then, and then when he passed from the scene, this adopted son would now stand in his place. He would be the patriarch of the family. He would give leadership to the family. He would continue the family name. In that culture... All of the motive, all of the initiative for the adoption lay with the adoptive father. He's the one who set the process in motion. Now typically, if the adopted man was young, then the adoptive father would appoint a guardian or a manager over the son until the son came of legal age as determined by the sole authority of the father. As I say, the, the absence of uh, adoption in Jewish culture is actually quite stark. In the Old Testament, there are only, uh, there are only three mentions of adoption in the entire Old Testament. And, and each of the three mentions of the adoption all occur outside the land of Israel. I thought that was interesting. Furthermore, all of the New Testament mentions of adoption, and, and they are all Paul's, and they appear in Paul's writings, and they all appear in Paul's writings written to Gentile churches. 
This is very much a Gentile thing. And it's rich. It's rich in what it communicates. Look with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. Where Paul speaks of adoption there. Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Paul says here that the adoption is is an expression of the sovereign will of God. It is the sovereign will of God that, that we have been redeemed and adopted into his family. A plan of God laid down before he even created the world. Back to your left in Romans chapter 8. Paul uses adoption again to communicate some profound truth. Romans 8 and verse 15. Pick it up in 14. For he says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. Here, the the adoption refers to the the intimacy of our present status, right? We are, by virtue of our adoption, sons of God. Sons of God. And and we receive the, the promised indwelling Holy Spirit by which we know God at the most intimate level. We can speak to the creator of the universe and say, Daddy, Daddy. And then unburden our hearts. Unburden our hearts. Beloved, it doesn't doesn't matter what your human fatherly relationship was like. Some of you have been blessed with great parental fathers, human fathers, others of you, not so much. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can speak to the Creator God, the covenant-keeping God, the God who sent His own Son into the world and say, Daddy, Daddy. It doesn't get any more intimate than that.
Verse 23 of the same chapter. Verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Here Paul uses the, the metaphor of, a, of adoption to speak of something else. It's a, it's a present reality, yes, but, the, but there is a future aspect to it as well. And here he, he's speaking of adoption to, to encompass our future resurrection and glorification. What he's saying is, is that we will enter into the full and complete joy of our adoption when Christ returns. When Jesus comes again, when, when the second coming of Christ in which he delivers us, delivers us from our earthly bodies, bodies that are sown in corruption, then, then we will know in full what we only know now in part. Adoption. Our future resurrection. And finally, Paul's other reference to adoption, and again, it's in this same letter. It's over to the next chapter, chapter 9 and verse 4. Again, I guess we'll try it in verse 3. It says, For I could wish that, that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, Paul saying, for the Jewish people, my clansmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, and, and on he goes. There he says, among the many blessings of God upon, among his or upon his special people, is the blessing of adoption. The blessing of adoption. They are brought into a special relationship with him. This whole concept of adoption is rich, to be sure. There's much that we can learn as we read and think about it, but we, but we need to be careful too. It is only a metaphor. It is only a picture. We want to be careful we don't press all of the details. But it does communicate something, and it, and it communicates something about the benefit and the blessings of becoming a child of God. And beloved, all of that is wrapped up in a teeny little bundle of rags laying in a feed trough on that first Christmas. It's all there. It's all there. So we unwrap the gift, right? And we get a taste of the glory of Christmas. A taste of the glory of Christmas. God, by His own initiative, sent His only begotten Son into the world. Born of a woman, born under the law, human in every way. Living perfectly. Dying violently. As my substitute and yours. So that he might ransom us 
from the slave market of sin and welcome us into his family permanently as his beloved children. I can't think of a Christmas gift that could exceed that. Can you? As you fulfill your family traditions, whatever they might be, undoubtedly it involves some measure of gift-giving. As you do that, may you remember then the littlest package God sent you the most amazing gift. May you know the glory of Christmas this year. Let's pray. Our Father, human language creaks and groans to try to express the amazing reality that you sent your own Son into the world. Eternal God became man. And that he lived among us. And then he died for us. And by his death and by his resurrection... The way has been made clear. The way has been opened for all to come into the family of God who will receive Him by faith. Our Father, I pray for those this morning who have yet to come to the family of God, come into the family of God. They are on the outside looking in. They do not know the joy of being able to call you Abba, Father. And may you work mightily in them this Christmas season. May you cause them to reflect anew upon the birth of Christ and what it all means. May you enable them to recognize the reality that they are in a desperate condition and and need a Savior. May you help them to see the beauty of Christ and to flee to Him. And, O Lord, may you renew our faith. We who know you, some of us for a very long time. And yet, Father, we confess that that in this life there are so many things that interfere that throw us off course, that cause our hearts to grow anxious and weary, to worry, and to lose our focus. May you direct our eyes again to that one who became flesh and dwelt among us. We ask it in his name. Amen.